Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation. Um, and there's a lot of different things we're coming up to that are much more specific in nature rather than just um, overall or general. Where we're going to start focusing in more on what does it mean to be a part of a local church? What exactly is the local church? And the week after, um, what are my responsibilities as a member in a local church? What are the duties that I have? What am I called to as a member in a church? And then in the following week, um, really addressing what does it mean to be a leader? What is the leadership of the church? Who um, encompasses the leaders? What is the pastor's role or of an elder or of a deacon? And all of these different things. So really just kind of essentially it's church 101 in a way, but helping us to be most effective as a church as we understand what it is that God has ordained each and every person and called us to within the context of a local church. Um, because again, with any anything that we are to be a part of, how important it is to know who we are and what is our role in these different things and being able to know everyone else's as well. Um, I guess the final announcement, so technically it is third. Um, Brittany was yelling, well, not yelling at me. You guys know, have you guys ever heard Brittany yell? I'm just curious. It's, yeah, great. Benji has. Yeah, exactly. And he's laughing about it. Um, I think a few people already know, but we we're just going to announce it. We are expecting our fourth child now. Yes, yeah, some of you are awe, and some of you are, oh my. Yes. Piper, yeah. What was, putting me in a tough spot here, Scooter. Yeah. Okay, Nola's doing the math from here on out. I, I was never good with fractions. Um, but yeah, incredibly exciting time. I remember, I've, you know, whoever I've talked to about it, I told. Um, but when Brittany told me that, you know, she was pregnant and we were expecting our fourth, you know, I was really excited for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then I said, all right, I'm going to go take a nap. But scientifically, you can't bank sleep for the future. It doesn't even happen. And you can't even catch up. It's actually tremendously uh, sad. But um, how exciting it is. Benji, Maddie, I think Judah's excited too. Obviously, as you guys saw, Piper is thrilled with the idea. Because um, then Piper won't be one of the smaller ones anymore. So it'll be great. Um, very, very excited for that. Just an incredible blessing um, of children and of being able to, um, just being able to raise children is an incredible blessing and what a, um, beautiful thing that it is. Um, so if you'd be in, in prayer for that as well, and especially for Brittany, um, as she tries to continue again as a mother already of three, continuing within the home while pregnant makes things a little bit more difficult. Um, so please don't let her overdo herself. Tell her to stop or tell her no. Please. Please. Um, I love you. Thank you. Yeah, come on now. Jeez. Mark? Uh, Wednesday night study and prayer? Yes. Yeah, I can. Really yes. Yeah, so Wednesday night, um, I was going to talk about it next week, but this works out perfectly. Is that when you switch time? Yeah, so in a couple weeks, and I'll make sure to nail down what the date is. It's looking to be the second uh, Wednesday within September when we're starting up with Awana and these things, um, looking at make has um, shifting our schedule for the Wednesday night Bible study and prayer meeting from 6.30 to 5.30. And just since it was brought up, just kind of addressing why. Um, one of the biggest things that I think that we could do a lot more effectively as a church and as a people and really focusing and giving more attention to is corporate prayer time, where I know for many of us, schedule-wise, uh, things get very difficult. I understand that there's a lot of things that are going on there's a lot of difficulties with it. And some of you have wanted to be a part of the Bible study and the prayer meeting, 
but also be able to help children with verses in the Awana program, and you're kind of picking between one or the other. Um, and so in order to kind of create an opportunity to be able to do both, moving that time from 6.30 to 5.30 for Bible study and prayer meeting allows for people to be able to attend both of these things, as well as if, um, and this is something that Davey and I are going to be working through, but trying to encourage Awana workers to be here at the very latest by 6. Um, my, my hope would be that everybody that's able would be able to be around for the Bible study and the prayer meeting, specifically the prayer time, where we're able to all pray together as those in prayer meeting, as well as those that are working in Awana, and really making that a foundation for what's actually occurring on that Wednesday night, and trying to emphasize that a bit more as a, as a general thing within the church. Um, and I say it all the time, even if the people of God simply just get together, even if a pastor isn't involved, even if there's not exegetical study that is done, simply gathering together to pray for 30, 40 um, minutes or an hour. It's not as if nothing has been accomplished or achieved or done. This is something, again, um, the apostles themselves in Acts 2 devoted themselves to prayer. Being devoted to prayer is an absolutely critical part of what it means to be um, in the church and in these things. So um, just kind of some more details with that we'll be able to kind of flesh out. But Mark, great reminder, um, the corporate prayer time being something that I'm looking to really emphasize a lot more kind of as we continue um, and in those things. It would be at 5.30, but not yet. Still, yes. So you're good. Any other announcements from anyone? We're doing these a little different this morning. It's kind of nice. All right. Um, so this morning, here we are going in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Um, if you're kind of jumping in a little bit here in the middle of the study, that's okay. Um, we'll, we'll do a little bit of context here before we get into it. This past week, we looked at just a few verses where he was again considering work, where Solomon, the preacher, the writer here, is explaining out work. And we've talked about how work is actually a gift from God, that the command to work was given before the fall. It's not as if we can blame the fall for our need to work, but that it is something that we should consider a great blessing from God. And that we saw that work should be and can be a pleasure, but not if it's pursued for our own selfish purposes. And we kind of walked through those in verse 4 um, of the man who is envied of his neighbor, uh, as well as verse 5, the fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. And we saw this contrast of those who work way too much and work way too hard, and in contrast, the one who essentially folds his hands sitting there and refuses to work at all, where overwork is an error, just in the same as a refusal to work would be a great error as well. And as we saw these things played out, we see in verse 8, which links us down to our text this morning, it says, There is one alone, and there is not a second. Yea, he hath neither child nor brother, yet there is no end of all his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he, For whom do I labor, and bereave my soul of good? This is also vanity, yea, it is a sore travail. Kind of gives this picture of one who is withdrawn, who is, who is alone, who is working tirelessly each and every day, never satisfied with how much he's worked. The eye is not satisfied with the riches or what it is that he has seen. And this person doesn't even stop and ask themselves, for whom do I labor? Essentially, why am I even doing all of this? It's all just for myself. And Solomon concludes at the end of verse 8, this is also 
vanity and a sore travail. And that question we camped on at the close of last week, for whom am I toiling? And I would ask it again this morning, for whom is it that you are toiling? Who is it that you are working for? Because we understand in our constructs we work for one another, we work for a boss, we work for all these different conditions, but ultimately, who is the Christian working for? God, right? Absolutely. He's the biggest boss of all, right? Everything that we are to do is to honor and to glorify God. Our work is a prime example of this. We are not to work simply for ourselves, but ultimately for the glory of God. And this includes also in our work for and with the people of God. So let's read our text, Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. He writes, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat, but how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege that it is to come as your people into this place to be able to share requests, to be able to fellowship with one another, to be able to be mutually encouraged by the, the hearing of the word. Lord, I pray that in all that we do here this morning in our study and with our continued fellowship, I pray that you would be honored and glorified in all that we do and that our conversation would be pure, that it would be true, that it would be right. I ask that, that by your spirit you would allow me to speak clearly and that we would be diligent in, what, in receiving your word here this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A very familiar opening here is verse 9, where we see two are better than one. How many of you are familiar with this phrasing, two are better than one? Okay, It's almost a universal thing that we understand culturally in so many ways. It's something that many of you who have grown up in church, you understand this, just the same as in verse 12, of a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So here, after all of this conversation on work, he enters into verse 9 and says that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. He says there's a much better way to work than this person that we see in verse 8 who is simply alone, doing everything on his own. He has no one to share it with. He's simply working day after day after day, and he has a sore travail. He's making it clear that it is better to share our life and to share our work than simply to try to make it our own, because this is how we were created, is it not? All the way back, we, we walked through this in the Sunday school in chapter 1 and 2. We were not designed to live alone. God first forms and he makes Adam and he looks upon Adam and what does he say? It is not good that man should be alone. It was never intended for man to be isolated and to live alone. Because God has never been alone. You know, I remember always growing up with this understanding and having this idea that, man, God must have created the world. God must have created man because, I mean, of course, he was lonely, right? God had to have been lonely. It was just him, and he's sitting around all day having nothing to do. And one of the strangest thoughts that I remember ever having was, 
God, because, you know, they had just invented PlayStation when I was a kid, God didn't even have PlayStation. He must have been so bored. Or he didn't have a ball and a stick for some of the others, right? He had to have been bored. He didn't have anything to do. God was alone, so he created out of a need for companionship. But we know that that's not the case. We know that the, in eternity past, what has always existed of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, there's never been a time where these individuals, these members of the Trinity, have been alone. God has never been alone. He's always been in harmony, always been in communion, always been in community with other members of the Godhead. And this is incredibly important as we understand how it is that we have been created, not to remain alone, but to be in community with others. Now, we've addressed this in the past, but this greatly differs from the American concept and the American culture. I remember how um, I hear stories from my grandmother talking about how everybody used to know each other. You used to know all your neighbors' names. You used to, almost some people would have keys to their neighbors' homes. You could just leave, oh, you don't even need a key. The door's unlocked, right? You guys probably, I remember those times even. Not when I lived, but other people. But this understanding, again, Flint, Michigan, you're not leaving your doors unlocked, okay? You're just not, right? But some of you remember those times where you didn't have to leave your, to lock your car every single time that you left. You didn't have to lock your door. You were able to trust your neighbors. You weren't walking out wondering, uh, I don't know if I want to leave if he's home. It's a completely different place that we live. It's a completely different culture here in America where we love the individual. Because there's nothing greater for the American culture than the me, the individualized person. That I have to do all of these things on my own. Not many of us here enjoy asking for help from somebody else. I have so much labor. I have so much work to do. I feel like I'm overworking myself. And someone comes along and says, you know what you should do is ask someone for help. Well, I just don't want to bother anybody. But is it always that or is it the, I think I should do it myself. I feel like I should be able to accomplish it myself. And yet scripture is incredibly clear as he writes and sets this forth because they have a good reward for their labor. Is this not the goal of your work? A good reward for your labor. Who here enjoys digging holes and filling them? My son, apparently. Who doesn't work? But this is the thing, because we all understand, well, that would be a vain pursuit of labor. It's foolishness to simply sit there, dig holes, and refill it day after day after day. But when you're asked to dig a hole, wouldn't you like for there to be two shovels instead of just one? For another person with a strong back, a weak mind, willing to do that with you? This is the goal, right? We understand even practically, pragmatically speaking, we understand two is better than one in our labor, and that, again, there's going to yield a much better result. It's not good for man to be alone. Notice he doesn't say it's just not preferred. It'll be good. It's okay, but it's just not ideal. God, looking upon what he has created in all this Garden of Eden, Adam has been formed, and he looks upon him and says, it's not good for him to be alone. And it's not good for Adam to be alone because it, wasn't, it wouldn't have ever been good for God to be alone because he never has been alone. Relationship 
community. These are all aspects of the Godhead that are shown forth in the very beginning here of creation. We see partnership is far greater than isolation. We see that this is true both in physical labor and essentially any other field, but it's also true within the the context of the church, where leadership of the church is to be a plurality, not just a single person. It's not just in you know the, the idea of digging a hole and filling it, but leadership in the church is to be more than one. It, it shouldn't just be one individual with all of the labor, with all of the authority, with all of the different responsibilities. Again, church is a community project. And when we look at the, the nature of the Trinity, when we see this continued fellowship, what always astounds me is there has never been a time where any members of the Godhead were in disagreement with another. Think about you and your spouse, you and your best friend, you and a coworker. Have you ever disagreed? Once or twice, right? Yeah. You and your kids, you and your parents, you guys ever have disagreements? Yeah, we're all just, yeah, we're really good at disagreeing over things, right? Sometimes we don't even really believe it. We just want to disagree. But here, the Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, in perfect harmony in every single instance. Where people try to separate the God of the Old Testament from Jesus in the New and say, see, these are very different people. I, I can't defend the God of the Old Testament. I just focus simply, we just talk about Christ because I don't really know what to do, how to reconcile these things. Jesus wouldn't have been, and I've heard this in a conversation, Jesus would not have been okay with certain things that God did in the Old Testament. What an incredible misunderstanding of the union of the Godhead. Where God is pronouncing judgment and doing these things that we can read and say, wow, that's pretty strong. We must understand that neither the Spirit nor Jesus himself was in any disagreement. And this includes even what we would say are the most heinous things. It's ordering Saul to slaughter all the Amalekites or raining down a fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. All of these things that we see, the locusts, all these other plagues, all these judgments. It's not as if Jesus is back in the corner sitting there saying, I don't know about that. Because do we remember what Christ's role is as he returns and comes to the earth? What is he going to do? To judge it. He's not, it's not coming back to sing Kumbaya and gather up a bunch of sheep and sit there around the campfire. We have to remember Jesus has never disagreed with the Father or the Spirit. Never been a disagreement. Even in the crucifixion, how beautiful it is that Christ coming, knowing what all his life, death, all of this is going to entail, in no way is he disagreeing with it and saying, but I'm not going to do that. And none of these individual members of the Trinity here are ever self-seeking. We see Jesus constantly giving glory to the Father. And where Jesus is glorified as the Father exalts him in all of these things and the Spirit working in all of these different areas, we see this incredible union amongst all the members of the Godhead. So we see that two is better than one in your work. And as we consider the Trinity, as we consider even something like salvation, we understand that it is not just a single person proposition. 
We're all influenced in some way by all of those that have come before us. We're influenced by those that are around us today. We're going to be later influenced by those that are going to come after us. Think about where you are in your life. Think about if you're completely isolated. Did you come to belief in Christ simply all of yourself and all on your own? Of course not. Think about where you are in your work. Is it simply all on your own? Whether good or bad, we've been influenced by past experiences, past individuals, parents, friends, siblings, other co-workers. The author of, of Roots, his name was Alex Haley, he has a famous picture that he keeps in his office and people constantly are asking him about it and he enjoys having the conversation. It's a, it's a picture of a turtle on a fence post. It doesn't seem incredibly significant, but he loves when people ask, hey, what is that picture about or why do you have that picture here? Because he says, when you see a turtle sitting on a fence post, you know that it didn't get there on its own. Right? It's absolutely true. I mean, a turtle climbing like that would be amazing. But think about it. This is, who we, this is how we are. Two is better than one. You don't just get put in a certain place all on your own. There are things you cannot do in your work. I'm going to say that again for a lot of the men. There are things you cannot do alone in your work. And I know you want to, but you weren't designed to do it. So it's not that you, you're a failure because you can't. You're not supposed to. You're not asked to. And I think that's an incredibly important reminder for us. He continues on, two are better than one when you fall down. That's verse 10. For if they fall, they, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Have you ever fallen down? Even just physically, just tripped, fell down. It's a lot nicer when someone's there to pick you up, isn't it? Again, contrasting this with our culture, we have this understanding of, I'm an American, I need to just pick myself up, you know, by the bald eagle and freedom and liberty, and I'm going to get up here and I'm going to do it all on my own. That's not the biblical concept. There ought to be another with you so that when we fall down in different points in life, someone else is there to pick you up. And it even pronounces this kind of, this judgment again, this woe to the one. Woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. You are prone to fall. It is going to happen. It's a universal reality. We are going to fall down, whether phys specifically physically, but also metaphorically. We are going to fall down at different points in life. The question is, is there anyone around to help pick you up? Because some of us know this all too well, but we can fall so low or so hard that we cannot get back up on our own. Where if there wasn't someone else there, there's no way that we would have ever been able to get back up. And it doesn't matter how skilled or how experienced or careful you are, it is possible for you to fall. It doesn't matter how many years you've done something, it doesn't matter how much education you have, how knowledgeable, how skillful you are, it is very, very possible, in fact, incredibly likely that you are to fall. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, it says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he falls. This is a word to those who think that you're exempt from actually falling. You're, you're actually the leading candidate to be the one to fall. 
who says, my feet are so set and I am so sure-footed, nothing is going to knock me off. There's a word for that. What do you think it is? Pride. It says, two are better than one, not only in your work, but also for when you fall. Verse 11, two are better than one in the cold. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? I think of when my, our family, we camp up in Leadville pretty much every year in 4th of July. We didn't this past year because it was going to be about 30 degrees at night, and that sounds miserable, right? But we're, so we ended up camping in Moab, which was also really hot. <laughs> Sometimes as a family, this is a side, I'm going to step over here for a second. Sometimes we make poor choices. Okay? But the beautiful thing is we make all these poor choices together as a family with smiles and snacks, and it's just a, it's an enjoyable time. But here, this, under, this context, verse 11, this is where many commentators step to the side and they attribute this verse and say, ah, see, this is the context, this is specific to the context of marriage. And I think there's a great error in doing this because this is something far wider than just an understanding of marriage. Now, there's a lean for why commentators tend to do this. They have this understanding, that this fear or the desire to protect the text from maybe saying something that it ought not to say. From the implication here, again, well, so if we're saying about two men and they're lying together and having heat, how can one be warm alone? There's a, there's a desire for so many commentators to feel like they have to protect a biblical text from something that it might possibly be interpreted as. Is it our job to protect the biblical text, or do we simply unleash it and let it protect itself? So many commentators that I read said, ah, this has to be talking about marriage. It's applicable to marriage, absolutely. But it's not speaking to marriage. This is the context, again, of a traveler who is in the wilderness. And those, again, when you're out, and some of you have done this, probably backpacked or gone on trips, and you're sleeping outside, and all you have is essentially a sleeping bag or just what you're wearing. And now you're going to be sleeping outside and it's cold. How much more would you want another person there? It doesn't even matter who it is because you're so cold. And this desire, because again, they would sleep back to back in order to keep each other warm. There's nothing, there's nothing here to be afraid of in this text. The elements could put your life in jeopardy. And here he's speaking of a traveler wandering throughout the wilderness. Again, the elements can put your life in jeopardy. And again, so many of us have experienced this in a much more metaphoric sense as well as a physical. But life can be cold and it can leave you in the cold many times. Where all you want is another person to be able to at least bear some of that cold that someone else is needed to help you stay warm. And here's what he's speaking to. A companion, our friends are needed to stay warm and to be out of the cold. We were never meant to live in isolation. This is one of the greatest predictors of mental health struggles is isolation. It's an amazing psychological thing that people have studied out in the last 50 years to find isolation is very, very bad for your mind. 
It's one of the worst possible things, one of the worst punishments you would give to a prisoner or someone else is to simply put them in isolation 23 hours of the day. You start to go crazy in your mind because you were made to live in community. We need relationships. Even those that say, I don't want a relationship with anybody. I don't want to know anybody. I just want to be left alone. That does not last. It's incredibly self-defeating to remain in isolation. Also, isolation is, if we actually are being honest with ourselves, is when sin is most prevalent in our life. When we are withdrawn from a body of believers, if we are simply within ourselves, again, we've addressed this before, when you're hungry, tired, or sad, and alone, consider the sin that people tend to commit. It's one of these four areas when it is most prevalent. It's in isolation. So many sins would never be committed at the dinner table, right? We withdraw, we slink back into the darkness, this isolation, because we're ashamed of these things. And we also understand how devastating isolation can be, not just for our human mind, but most importantly for the soul. He continues not only explaining this out through the cold, but he continues in verse 12. And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So not only of a, of a traveler on a journey, having to brace the elements and requiring a companion for warmth, but we may also be attacked when we are alone. Again, as we just mentioned, consider the greatest times of temptation or where you're most prone to these different sins in your life. It's when you are in isolation, when you are being attacked, and when you are alone. We look at the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, and we see that as he's traveling, he is alone. Robbers come upon him, and what happens? He's beaten. Now imagine if he had a whole bunch of friends. Probably isn't going to happen. We understand we're more likely to be attacked when we are alone than when we are with others. Many of us are going to face attacks, and we have faced attacks in so many different ways of life. And the way that we respond to this is in community with one another and keeping in mind Ephesians 6 as it goes through the armor of God. We think of all of these different things that God has given to equip his people to combat sin and temptation and the wiles of the devil, all of these things. Did you notice that there's nothing for the back? There's not protection for your back? Why? Because you shouldn't have to be protecting your back. There's someone with you. The Romans would walk in legions. They would have support for one another in the back. There's not a concern as you're going into battle of someone shooting an arrow into my back because there's someone else with me. Now imagine the Christian life, the Christian journey. You're all suited and booted throughout all the armor of God. You've got all of these different elements with you, but you're alone. You're in isolation. You're wandering in the wilderness all by yourself. Are you confident? Or are you worried about what's coming behind you potentially? Because you have no fellowship. You have no companions. You have said, I have enough just in myself. None of us can be successful in this. This is why God has given the church, the Christian community, why it is emphasized in all of these epistles, throughout all of biblical history and every single book, no one being alone, constantly in community with one another, not just because it's a good idea, 
and because we love to hold hands and sing and do potlucks and all of these different things. But we need it. We absolutely need it. Have you missed church for a month in a row before? Did you feel different at the end of that month than at the beginning? It doesn't matter what church you are at, what age you are, whatever the case is, those who desire Christian community, it is a great, great stress when we don't have it. These are battles that you cannot win on your own. And here as he writes this and says, If one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. We should be able, as the people of God, to promise one another, Hey, I can't promise you that you won't be attacked. I can't promise you that these things won't happen or come up. But I can promise you that you will not fight these things alone. How many people do you know, or maybe it's yourself, that is constantly fighting the same battle over and over and over to no avail because you feel like you have no help? And there's two sides to this, right? People being willing to help, but also sometimes you have to ask for help. I love to be able to help people. So many of you love to be able to be helpful to everyone else. I have a greatly uh, difficult time asking for help. I'm not good at it. You can ask my wife. I don't like to ask people for help in things. And I don't even think that I can just do it all. I just kind of just don't want to ask for help. It's not okay. It's not good. It's not the way that we are supposed to lead, to live. And here, the threefold cord, not easily broken. I just want to close with this thought. It doesn't matter how many numbers you have, how many people you have in support of you, how many friends, how many friends on Facebook, how many followers on Twitter, whatever the case is, it does not matter the numbers. If God is not involved, it will not work. It will not be effective. It will have no power. The threefold cord, again, I can have a best friend, and we are the best of friends, the closest of people. We would do anything for each other. If the Lord is not involved or included, it does not matter. Because there is no power simply in companionship. It's not just because you have a friend. It's because of Christian community. It's the Lord binding us together in these things. The power of God in all of it. And so a simple encouragement this morning as we've walked through these verses is a consistent understanding two is better than one. There's the unknown author who said, I went out to look for a friend and I couldn't find anyone. I went out to be a friend and saw them everywhere. I think a lot of us understand what that feels like where we need a person. We want someone to come alongside us and be a friend. And it seems very difficult to find. And as we go and help everyone else, we realize there's friends everywhere. How important it is as the church to show forth the love of Christ by our love for what? One another. There's a Christian community distinction in this love that is not to be found everywhere else, but yet so often people are looking for community in all the wrong places because, quite honestly, the church has failed in many ways to show that community, to show genuine love and care. And people say, oh, the church is just as political as Congress is, so why would I even want to be a part of that? Those people backstab each other. They're lying and they're hypocrites and they do all of these different things. Which is why it's important to understand who the church is, what 
we are to be, who God has called us to be and what he has called us from. And so this morning, a good time for reflection here. As Mrs. Pace, um, I'd like to ask her to come and to play it on the piano, just offer a time to, to think about these things. Am I trying to do it all on my own? Because that is not how God has intended. If you are a mother trying to do everything in the home and as a family all by yourself, that is not how God has intended for that to work. We understand so many single-parent households, that is not how God has intended for it to work. But not only asking for help, but be willing to help those that greatly need it. We all know those that are greatly in need of companions and friends, whether it's in work or to keep them out of the cold or to be able to help them in all of these different attacks that occur or to pick them up when they fall. Consider this understanding of two is better than one. How can I be a two for someone else, how can I help them? How can I engage in this Christian community? Not trying to do every single thing all in myself. Because praise God, he did not leave me all on my own, but that he intervened through the person of Christ to secure redemption for those who would believe. What a beautiful truth that that is. Father, we thank you for the sending of your Son to die on the cross, to atone for sins, to accomplish and to secure the redemption that was unfolding throughout all of Scripture. Lord, we, we see these truths as simple and pragmatic and incredibly uh, what appears to be common sense of two being better than one, of this idea of community. But Lord, I pray that it would be something that we would truly take to heart that we would allow your word to change our life to not only amend our hearts but to allow our mind to be consistently transformed that that we understand that in our own strength and in our own power and left to ourselves that we are nothing but because of the grace of God and because of the intervening grace and this understanding that he has accomplished what we could never have accomplished that he has fulfilled those things that we could never fulfill that Christ obeyed perfectly where we disobeyed and rebelled. We owe all of our salvation to this understanding of community that, that as we are saved, we enter into a community of believers that extends far beyond our present time, that we're saved as individuals to be a part of a people, of, to be your people, adopted as sons into your family with the privilege of being able to call 
to call you and to cry out, Abba, Father, where we receive an inheritance not because of works that we've done in righteousness, but because of the perfection and righteousness and holiness of your Son. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the redemption that was accomplished at Calvary. And Lord, I pray that as your church and as your people that we would be consistently mindful of what you've called us to, to be in community with one another, using all the gifts that you have given your people and your church to build up the body for the mutual edification of the saints, that you would be shown forth in all that we do as a light to those that are around us, and ultimately that you would receive all the praise, all the glory, and all the honor. Lord, we ask all these things and we praise you here this morning. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to ask Davy to come and lead.